So I'm um, glad to see everyone this morning, and I'm also glad that we're starting our new schedule. I'm looking forward to having everyone together for uh, worship service this morning, so that will be um, exciting. And I was wondering if people would still come since this is at 9, but you're all here. That's good. I'm glad. Um, this morning, as we continue in our study in church history, I want to begin this morning by reading from uh, the scriptures in John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. Of course, this is where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus informs him about the need to be born again. John 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this will play a, a major role in uh, this section of church history that we're looking at today in the lives of people. This is something that would, um, a biblical truth that would have to be recovered um, during this time period that we'll be looking at. Um, and we'll see that as we, get, as we get into it this morning and look at the people um, from this time period we'll be looking at that had such an impact on, on the church uh, moving forward. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, uh, for the sunshine, Lord, for the ability to come and gather together. What a joy that is to see everyone. I look forward, Lord, to our fellowship today, to our service. We pray, Lord, you would bless the reading of your word. Uh, Father, that you would bless the, the studying of the scriptures uh, as we get into the service. And Lord, thank you again for these people that, that came before us, uh, that you used mightily in the church uh, to recover your word, to preach your word, to pre preach the truth of your word. Um, Lord, may we be faithful to that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for the last couple of weeks, we talked about the Reformation. We focused primarily on Martin Luther and John Calvin um, and the work of these and, of course, other reformers would bring biblical authority and clarity back to the church. Um, we mentioned the harsh persecution uh, being faced by the Protestants at the hands of Queen Mary I um, that caused many to uh, have to flee England for places, safer places, and they would go to places like Geneva and Frankfurt. And those Protestants who fled uh, from Bloody Mary would be greatly influenced by, even further, by reformers like John Calvin and others. And fortunately for Protestants, Queen Mary would, would only reign for a short time, uh, five years before dying in 1558, uh, which would open the door for those who fled to return um, to England. And when they came back, they brought with them the things they'd been taught. 
Uh, they brought back the, the Reformed theology. Um, and they were faced with an English church that still had remnants of Roman Catholic corruption. They wanted to implement uh, the biblical teaching of the Reformers and that, so to rid the church of those corrupt remnants and bring about a purity that had long been absent. Um, and, there, and this particular group of Protestants would come to be known by another name. Um, and this time I actually put blanks in your note sheet. So for those of you that want more of an adventure, you can fill in some blanks. Um, well, what would the name be, what is the name that would be given to these particular Protestants that wanted to further purify the church? Right, the Puritans. You can put that in your notes there. I know, maybe the line's not long enough to fit it all in. I'm sorry. But I can't judge how big everybody's writing is. So, uh, English Protestantism or Anglicanism under uh, Queen Elizabeth I, who is now occupying the throne, would still retain some elements of Roman Catholic liturgy, which was a frustration for the Puritans. Uh, who they didn't want any of that anymore. They they hoped that all that would change. I mean, they had to go through the reign of Queen Elizabeth, and they hoped it would change when James I took the throne five years later in 1603. But James didn't see uh, things their way either, um, and he made that clear um, at what was known as the Hampton Court Conference. And one thing that would be beneficial, though, to the church for many years to come was accomplished by James I. What project would James I commission that um, we have all actually benefited from? What was that? The King James Bible. Yeah, he commissioned a new English translation of the Bible, the King James Version, which would be um, completed in 1611, um, sometimes also referred to as the Authorized Version. Even so, though, the the Puritans' frustration wouldn't be satisfied um, under King James. They wouldn't get the changes in the church that they, that they wanted. In fact, th things would get worse under the next king, King Charles I. He took the throne in 1625. Charles was married to a Roman Catholic uh, lady. So you can see maybe a conflict there as well. He also made a man named William Laud the Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay, and this guy, William Laud, he would ratchet up the, the persecution against the Puritans because he opposed them. He, he opposed what they stood for. And he particularly targeted um, Puritan preachers for going away from the liturgy that was called for in the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer was the official worship guide for the Church of England. Uh, and it was put together in 1549 by Thomas Cranmer. Um, the f he's the former Archbishop of Canterbury. He, he, would, he would have been a Protestant, but he was also the Archbishop of Canterbury um, before William Laud. And Laud prohibited preachers from teaching in particular on the sovereignty of God and salvation, um, and which is a key teaching of the Reformation. And that would eventually lead, all of this would just keep kind of building and, and compounding itself, and it would eventually lead to uh, the English Civil War, which lasted from 1641 to 1651, where the 
Puritan supporters of Parliament would fight and win, actually, the war against the Royalists who supported King Charles. Um, and, and then, actually, before that conflict even ended, Charles would be tried and executed for treason in 1649. And, and then they got, at this time, they would get rid of the monarchy, actually, and replace, replace it with what was called the Protectorate um, under a man named Oliver Cromwell. But that wouldn't last forever. Um, but also during that time, during the time of that Civil War, um, Puritan theologians met at the Westminster Assembly, and they drafted a confession of faith and catechisms. And these would be adopted um, in the English church, bring about a time where uh, the Puritans would be, they would finally be able to implement the changes in the church that they wanted to implement. They would be able to, to rid the church of the things that they wanted it to be rid of. Um, what was the document, if you know, what was the document that they drafted at that assembly? That's a famous confession. Yeah, the Westminster Confession. Right? It, took, it took them actually 27 months to, to do, it's not like they just got together one night and threw a bunch of things out there. Uh, this was something that was labored over, and it took them 27 months to to complete the work on, on this document, which uh, would be the creed of the Presbyterian Church in England and Scotland. Uh, it's a, a famous confession of faith. Um, and this time of Puritan control in the church wouldn't last. Um, the, the, the disappearance of the monarchy wouldn't last. After uh, Cromwell died, Charles II, uh, came back from exile in the Netherlands, he became king and restored the monarchy in England. And of course, with that, it took the church back to its, I don't know if condition is the right word, it took them back to their condition prior to the Civil War. And so undid all the things that had been, all the changes that had been implemented by the Puritans. And actually they went farther and about 2,400 Puritan pastors, they're actually forced out of the church in, in what was called um, the Great Ejection in 1662. And the Puritans then became known by a couple other names. Um, does anybody know what those are B before I say them? Okay, you got blanks there in your paper. So they became known as uh, dissenters and as nonconformists. And these dissenters started their own church congregations and they continued preaching, even though it was actually now against the law for them to preach without a license. They had to have a license to preach, um, which they did not have, yet they continued to do so anyway. And in fact, under this persecution, one Puritan preacher uh, was imprisoned for 12 years, during which time he would write a famous book, um, an allegory about the Christian life. Does anyone know who that preacher is and what the name of his book was. What's that? Pilgrim's Progress, right. Probably lots of you had read Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan. And he's one of those preachers that was uh, in trouble for preaching without a license. And so he was imprisoned for 12 years. And it's during that time that he wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress. And of course, that book is extremely popular it's been translated in, in like over 200 languages and gone all over the world. Uh, it's one of the best-selling books of all time. 
And in fact, I didn't know this, but he, the way he wrote that sort of changed writing. It changed the way writing was done, um, the fashion in which he did that. And it brought about, actually, um, the idea or the concept of the novel. Um, and, and it kind of started with that, he, the, way he, the way he wrote that, that allegory. And this uh, period with the setting aside of Puritan preaching would prove to be part of a long spiritual decline in the church. And entering the 18th century, um, the church was in great need of revival. Um, but these were, these Puritans that were about in that time were not the only ones um, around. There, there were some that had fled back um, in the early 1600s during the reign of King James, reign of King James and, and some of them would eventually travel to North America on a ship called the Mayflower. And they would land at Plymouth in 1620. Okay, these, a lot of these Puritans from this time that are getting away from um, all of the persecution end up over here on, uh, on our continent. During Charles I, um, more Puritans had, than just a few, had fled for the new homeland, and this would be called the Great Migration of the 1630s. And around 20,000 people, mostly made up of Puritans, would cross the Atlantic and settle in New England. And I think something that's interesting is that first wave of Puritans in New England were very devout. Right? They were this was fresh to them. The, the reform teaching, the reason they're leaving, all of that was fresh. They were devout uh, believers um, following the teachings, but that wouldn't last. Um, you know, the generations that would, would follow them would drift away from the original Puritan convictions, um, which is not unfamiliar. I mean, we see that all throughout the scripture with God's people. Um, it's, a, it's a pattern in church history spiritual indifference, right? And so at this time, it was no different. There was this, this spiritual indifference uh, would, would follow them. And by the early 1700s, the churches in New England were filled with people who professed to be Christians but were really not. Um, you know, this, again, would follow, pretty much follow the pattern uh, back in England. It wasn't just those that came over to America that would drift away or fall away um, into this. It was all the, the Puritans over in England, the same thing. They, they drift away, there's this decline in, in, um, in the spiritual growth of Christians. Um, and they would forget things, key things, like the passage of scripture we read at the beginning, that, that to, to enter the kingdom of God, a person must be born again, right? And so, you can imagine what kind of things they would drift back into. The patterns are the same. They drift back into works, right? Um, living a certain way by certain rules, will you will be seen as acceptable before God. And so this kind of stuff drifts back in. Kids don't listen to their parents. That's what it is. All right, the next generation. <laughs> um, so, go ahead, Bubba. I, for sure. So these aren't in your notes, but before we're focusing on the English church today, 
but three things that have happened on the continent at concurrent with all of this, uh, I'll just, just you can write it down and maybe just look them up later, but I'll, I'll address each one in the order they happened. One, remember Luther started the Reformation in 1517. In 1546 is the Council of Trent, which was when the, the Catholic Church is really, as we know it today, is born. So the church under the Pope is going to get together and say, what's this guy Luther got to say for himself? Is he right? Is he wrong? And rather than recognize the truth of what he is saying and how the truth of what Luther is saying is reflecting the early foundations of the church, they're going to dig in their heels. And they are going to reaffirm a lot of the teachings that Luther was rejecting. Um, so in a lot of ways, that's the Roman Catholic Church that we know today was born in that council. So it was a really critical event. The second event is in, in 1555, which is called the Peace of Augsburg, which is when the Protestants in Germany and the Catholics in Germany are going to reconcile with each other and say, our differences are irreconcilable. So each person is going to follow the religion of the duke or the count that's over them. And so because of that, Germany is going to become checkerboarded between Lutherans and Catholics. But it's going to set an uneasy peace in Germany. And then that peace, the third event, is the Thirty Years' War, which is from 1618 to 1648, which is really going to be the, the physical eruption of all of the pent-up frustration that came from the... Uh, the Reformation, the the, phys the 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 political fallout from the Reformation, plus some good old-fashioned land grabbing, um, <coughs> and it's going to be the most destructive war Europe had ever seen. About five to eight million people were killed. Roughly a third of Germany was was killed in this war, and ultimately, by the end of the war, the, it's just going to be a return to the status quo. But that's kind of the the end of the Reformation is in the the, the great flame out of that war. So just some things to consider. Yeah, thanks. And read up more on later. Yeah, Probably. thanks for that. Um, so again, the, the course that is taking place with this drift away from the truth of God's word, uh, even though now they have the word of God in their hands, um, this is the pattern throughout the scriptures where one generation would follow the Lord their God, and the next would abandon him for idolatry and would kindle the Lord's anger. And like, like Joshua's generation, they obeyed the Lord. But when Joshua died and when that whole generation of, of Joshua died, uh, the next generation did evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. Um, but God, as we've seen through our study of church history, God always has his remnant. God always raises men up to lead the people back uh, and that's what was needed now. That's what's needed in, in England. It's what's needed in America would be godly people um, restoring biblical teaching. And um, as a new generation would claim fellowship with God, um, you know, that, that's what was needed um, to get away from this generation that had begun to live like the devil. Right? Th uh, there would be a revival. Revival would come and it would come both in England and in um, the American colonies. God would bring that about by raising up 
uh, four men in particular. It doesn't mean that these are the only four men that had any impact on the church. Um, I do believe just like now, as we see in our country, the church is floundering in many, many ways. But there is always God's faithful ministers. There's, there are churches all over our country that are faithful to the word of God. You know, we live in a time with, with our social media and our access to internet that we see, we can see, you know, sort of celebrity preachers. Um, and, and there are some that are very good, but we, we can also forget that there are very godly pastors preaching all across our country that will never be known. They'll never be, you know, on YouTube and things like that, but they are leading their people um, faithfully in the word of God. And so God always has these men. So I just wanted to emphasize that though we would talk about these men, it doesn't mean they were the only ones, but they had such an impact on the church and on history uh, that we want to mention them. And I wish we had a, a ton of time, but we, we can't just, we just can't do justice to these, these guys, but uh, I do want to mention them. So there's, there's four men that we'll look at um, that God would use to call the church back to a right relationship with him um, and, and to a right understanding of scripture, especially in terms of salvation. And um, these guys would be, they really would be great evangelists. And they would bring not only um, the truth back to the church, but they would bring many people to salvation in Christ through their, through their preaching and their ministries. And so on the, on the English side, there were three college guys at Oxford University, and one of them founded a group called the Holy Club in 1729, uh, and that was Charles Wesley. His brother John Wesley and their friend George Whitfield, maybe these names sound familiar to you, they, uh, they should if you've done any studying in church history. Uh, so, so Charles Wesley's brother John would join him in that group, as would George Whitfield. They were, they were friends. Uh, and all part of the, the holy club. And they had a strong emphasis on being holy through external good works. And George Whitfield would even go so far as to, to permanently damage his health um, by severely disciplining his body in the hopes of earning eternal salvation. Okay, we've already seen this in some of the, the early reformers, that, that this was a part of their life as well. That this doing works, this harshness to your body you recognize you're a sinner, and therefore you're doing these things to, um, <clears throat> to deal with your sin, but it's not doing anything. And so that's what was going on in that group uh, with, those, with those men. Though it was called the Holy Club, and they would consider themselves Christians, uh, they, were, they were not. Um, other students at Oxford watched what they were doing and found that they, these guys were extremely methodical in what they were doing in their self-discipline, in their spirituality. And because of that, and the people watching that, they would be given a nickname. Um, so what nickname would they be given that would eventually stick and, and it would become a worldwide um, Protestant denomination? Yeah, the Methodists, right? So uh, from these guys would come uh, the Methodist denomination. They were, like I said, professing Christians at the time that they were in this group. Um, but there would come a day, looking back, when all three of these guys would admit, because they understood now, that they were not believers. They were not converted when they were part of the, the holy club. Um, and so once God opened their eyes uh, with the gospel and they truly became saved, 
they could look back and, say, and realize I was, not, I was not converted because they were trying to do so based on their own, their own merit. Uh, the first of those three to be converted was George Whitfield, uh, and that was after Charles Wesley gave him a copy of a work by Henry Scogel, a Puritan. He wrote uh, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And so um, Charles Wesley gave this copy of this book to George Whitfield, and he read it. And in reading that, Whitfield learned, which this sounds strange, but he learned that he had to be born again or he would be condemned by God. And it goes back to what I said as we read the scripture at the beginning where Nicodemus came to Jesus, uh, and that's exactly what Jesus told him. But, and you would think that these men having the scriptures, that, that would, that's a clear doctrine, that's a clear teaching. But just like today, people can have the Bible and sit in church for years and years, hear sermons, and not understand that they have to be born again to, to enter the kingdom of God. It is not based on works, though the scripture is clear about it. So there, there is this blindness that they had. But in reading this work from this Puritan man, he came to see that. And it was after reading that book in 1733 that the Lord opened George Whitfield's eyes and he would become saved, truly saved. And he started preaching. Uh, he started evangelizing wherever he could find a church to preach in. It wasn't always possible, and it became more difficult over time to find a place to preach in. And so he started preaching outdoors. Um, so we see that becoming a thing. It would become a, a, a mark of the Methodist church, it would be um, outdoor preaching. Uh, and at, at different times in 1738, both John and Charles Wesley would also have their hearts transformed by God. They would truly come to faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And no longer would they trust like they had back in their holy club days. They wouldn't trust anymore in their own moralism to save them. Um, only the true regeneration of the Holy Spirit in a person can save them from their sins. And so they would come to faith in Christ. So all three of these men now who once thought they were Christians and were not have now become Christians. And also in that same year in 1738... Um, Whitfield would make the first of what would end up being 13 sort of transatlantic trips um, in his lifetime. He, he would come across the Atlantic 13 times, and seven of those times it would be coming here to the American colonies. And he first went to the colony of Georgia. He would also travel and preach in cities all over New England, like New York and Boston. Uh, and there did come a time in the 1740s when George Whitfield and John Wesley would split. They would split over the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation. So early Methodism was, was split. Uh, Whitfield held to the Reformed doctrine of election, and John Wesley held to an Arminian view um, that taught human free will. And we talked about this last week um, These um, with, with John Calvin and... Um, and Jacob Arminius, uh, and the two differing schools of thought there. But even though they, they split, they would eventually um, come back together. It wouldn't, it wouldn't divide their friendship uh, forever. And they both actually continued to have um, a major influence on the people throughout England. 
They both would call on people to examine their own lives and to see if they had truly been born again. And remember, that's where they had been. They had been a place of thinking they were saved and they were not. And so that was an emphasis of theirs, was calling people to examine their lives and to see, are you truly born again? And so both would embrace outdoor preaching. Um, I mean, an outdoor preaching didn't restrict them in, in space, uh, not outer space, you know, like room. <laughs> uh, they didn't, and they didn't need the approval of local clergy. Um, but Whitfield would have um, an impact on both sides of the Atlantic. With, with his, all his trips back and forth, he would be impacting the church on both sides um, with his teaching. And he would become the most well-known preacher in the 18th century on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, any questions at this time? Yeah. Or, I'm not, if you want to talk about that. That's great. I want you to. I was hoping you would. <laughs> so, John Wesley, in founding Methodism, uh, he's still heavily influenced by Reformed theology. And, and in his own words, he says he comes within a hair's breadth of Calvin in that he wants to affirm the, the total depravity of man. And at, on, at the same time, he wants to, uh, when I say once, I mean, it's not like a trivial one. I mean, he is compelled, you know, by the truth of the Bible to, uh, to affirm the, the absolute necessity of God's grace in salvation. And so Wesley, at the same time, is, is pulled in the Arminian direction in terms of free will and, and, and humanity having the will to choose God or to reject God. And, and so the way he resolves this and, and the way he, he comes to that hair's breadth of Calvinism and then, and then steps back is what is called provenient grace. <coughs> Excuse me. And... So what he is going to, what provenient grace is, it comes from the Latin word prevenio, which means to come before or to precede something. And so it is, it is grace that God dispenses kind of in general or in, in terms of each person's life. When a person is born, God's grace is already present in their lives. And, and there's you know, he, he's looking through scripture and he's seeing a lot of different things uh, like in John's prologue in one nine, where it says, you know, the light was the light of all men. So that people have, that God has dispensed this prevenient, this, this prevenient grace, this grace that comes before and uh, before a person's acceptance of Christ. And, and it's through that prevenient grace, the grace that has allowed somebody then to overcome the, the sinful nature that they're born with and then choose or reject God. And that, that kind of becomes the central tenet, if you will, the, the central distinction of Wesleyan Methodism is, is the affirmation of prevenient grace. So obviously there are responses to that, and this isn't necessarily the form in which to respond to that, but just that was, that was really the, I don't want to say the innovation, because there were early church leaders that had a similar take on things, but that was really his contribution to the, the Reformation or, or, yeah. or the, the, the awakening. Yeah. 
Any questions about any of that at this point? So um, Whitfield died in 1770 on his, on his seventh trip to uh, the, the colonies after preaching in New Hampshire. Um, he died. And he's credited with around 18,000 sermons uh, in his lifetime. And Charles Wesley died in 1788, and he would be, does anybody know what he's most well known for? Hymns, yeah, right? Yeah, he would, he would be credited with composing over 5,000, maybe upwards of 6,000 hymns um, in his lifetime, and some of which you probably have, have sung and like to sing, um, like, And Can It Be, and Oh For A Thousand Tongues To Sing. Those should sound familiar. Did he write Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Yeah. You want me to sing it? Yeah, no. We're trying to keep people at the church, not scare people away from the church, so. <laughs> yeah, so he, that is a lot of writing. And I don't know, I mean, I've never written a song, but I know it's probably not easy. <laughs> but to write that many, these guys, they weren't dummies. These were deep thinkers, and, and they contributed a lot to the church and to church history. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever been in the little Sunday school class I did on Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but it really is a phenomenal piece of songcraft. Every single line in the song, every line is either taken directly from or is a very close paraphrase of Scripture. So when you sing that song, you are singing Scripture, but his knowledge of the word is so deep, he is taking things from Haggai and Malachi and and putting them w together with things from Genesis or from Romans, I mean, in, in, in such a way as you really see the thread that runs through all of Scripture that is leading towards Christ. It's just a, a master craft in, in biblical exegesis and also in song craft. So, and, yeah. and I would encourage everyone to read the, there, we always sing three verses, but there's really, there's five verses, and the other two verses we don't sing are possibly the best two. So... I would encourage everyone to check them out. Yeah, I, I think there came a time in the church when we, I mean, if you, many of us who grew up in the church know there was a time when we had hymn books and we sang from hymn books. And uh, I remember as a kid, we would sing from hymn books and there came a time, I can, I don't remember the year, but there was a definite change in that when we sang from the hymns, there came a time where we'd say, okay, we're going to sing the first, second verse, and then the fourth, and we'd skip the third. Or maybe if there was five, we would skip the middle two. And, you know, you don't think much of it, but it's telling a story. Those hymns are telling a story. And so when you go years and years and years not singing those, you lose them, and they're perhaps the best, the best verses. So um, I, I remember that, that starting as, as the church kind of drifted away from hymns uh, into... Um, worship music, and which I'm not saying is worship music is bad, but um, well, some of it is. But there are bad hymns too. <laughs> we don't want to get into that right now. Um, so yeah, those, like I said, they're, these aren't dummies. Um, and the things, if you're going to write like that and take from all over Scripture, it would be very easy to create new doctrine if you're not careful. And so to do that, to do all that writing. 
uh, in, in the song that you're talking about and keep it in line with Scripture is, is not an easy task, but, but these guys were very knowledgeable about the Scriptures. Um, so that was Charles Wesley, again, died in 1788. His brother, John Wesley, died in 1791. Um, again, after helping to shape the Methodist movement, which would later become the largest Protestant denomination in America in the, in the 19th century. Um, even though he only visited the colonies one time, uh, the impact of these, of these guys would, would cross oceans. Um, these men were evangelists, and through their preaching and other works, were used by God to bring about the revival that was needed and was necessary in England. Um, after those declining years following the Protestant, Protestant Reformation, uh, as people would drift away, this, this revival came through, um, through these men. They would also hold to the Reformation commitment to Scripture, to Scripture alone being the authority for defining doctrine and determining um, convictions of Christians. Um, they would hold to that. And also it, that it was through faith alone that sinners would come to be justified by God, by grace alone, apart from what they once held as valuable, which would, would have been their own self-righteous deeds. Right, so they would come to, to faith in that. These men in particular would, would come to the, the truth of that and would teach that. Um, so what was started in the, in the Protestant Reformation is still carrying forward uh, through these men. Though they would, have, they would differ in some areas, those foundational things they would agree upon. Um, and so now let's cross over the ocean and see what God did in the colonies through the fourth man that I haven't mentioned yet. Um, and that is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was born um, on October 5th in 1703, the same year actually as John Wesley was born. So these, they, these guys lived at the exact same time. Edwards was the fifth of 11 children. He was the only boy. Um, unlike, yeah, yeah. I know what he, I know what he went through. I, I only have girls in my family, so. Um, so, unlike Wesley, um, Edwards was born in the colonies in East Windsor, Connecticut. So, he was born here in America. His father and maternal grandfather were both ministers, okay, so it was, it was in the family. He is regarded as one of the most influential thinkers of the American colonies, and he and his wife also would have 11 children. Um, and Edwards was extremely smart. And he was a sort of a child prodigy. He was already attending Yale University by the time he was 16 years old and would eventually be uh, awarded both a BA and an MA. He would leave college and um, join his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, in pastoring the Northampton Congregational Church in Massachusetts. And then later, he would become the sole pastor there in 1729 at the age of 26. Um, so, again, he's no dummy, right? The, very committed to Scripture, very knowledgeable in Scripture, and that would guide everything that he would do. Um, and so Jonathan Edwards was born again in 1721, um, and though he would struggle with it early on, he did come to love the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Uh, it didn't, didn't come right away, but 
but he would come to love that doctrine. And he's well known for writing, writing out over a, a period of years 70 resolutions about his desire to glorify God and live his life in obedience to him. Um, and these are actually a pretty interesting list of things for a young man to resolve to live by. We don't, we don't even use that kind of language anymore when we talk. And when was the last time you heard someone talk about, I'm, I'm resolved to do this in, in reference to their Christian faith? Uh, I mean, we do New Year's resolutions, right? But those go away in a, in a week. Um, but this, this man is devoted to God. He's devoted to the Word of God. And he, he goes about writing out 70 different resolutions uh, for his life. And here's what he wrote in the preface to his resolutions. Okay, before he gets to all the resolutions, he says this. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So I wanted to ask, what, in that statement alone, what do you gather is his concern? What is he concerned about in writing these resolutions? Being like Christ, okay. Glorifying God. Okay, there's multiple things in there that he desires. Recognizes God's grace. He, he acknowledges God's sovereignty in that. Um, he's, you can see his humility in that. He acknowledges his humility. Um, this is not a, a proud guy. Um, and, and absolutely we see that he wants to glorify God. And that's why he writes out these 70 resolutions. These are things he wants to live by. Yes, he wants to live by Scripture. But the things he's writing out in these resolutions come from Scripture. They would be what, what he's, how he's supposed to live as a Christian. And so he writes these 70 resolutions. So I want to give you just a, a couple of them here. Uh, well, four of them. Um, and so here's some examples. Number four of his resolutions, he says, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what, a, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I, can po I possibly can. Think about that one for a minute. I, these are convicting. He says, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. That's something that all of us can, should be desiring to do in our Christian lives. Number 16, resolved never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor, more or less, upon no account except for some real good. And number 52, he said, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. <laughs> Interesting for a young man to be thinking these things and, and wanting to commit his life to the Lord in this way and be faithful to God, be faithful to the word of God, 
These are, are pretty exemplary people, not sinless people, okay? We're not saying that, but it was a different time, and like I said, these, these kind of things are convicting. Um, as was the need in England, and I mentioned earlier, the need in the, the colonies was the same. There's this drift, this drift away from biblical truth, um, and so we had a need in the colonies for revival as well. Um, there was widespread complacency and indifference to God and the, and the scriptures, um, though, again, people still profess to be Christians. Um, but, and, and people that grew up in the church all their lives and yet had not come to saving faith in Christ. And before we think that was limited to that time, it's the same thing as now. In any congregation, there are people that sit there week after week thinking they're saved and they're not. And Edward's own church became the starting point for a revival in the mid to late uh, 1730s that would spread throughout the surrounding area. And not only was Edward's a part of this, but like I said, the other guys from across the pond that lived at the same time that we've already talked about, George Whitfield would come and he would be traveling around preaching and even came to Edward's um, own town as part of his evangelistic tour through the colonies. And so these guys are all preaching at the same time. Um, and through the preaching of these men, people, again, became aware of their sin. Uh, they became aware that they were spiritually dead and needed to be born again. Again, it's right there in the scriptures, but they were blind to it. And here these guys are preaching, this, this evangelistic preaching, and people are hearing the gospel again. And God is opening their eyes, opening their ears and their hearts to hear it. And God is changing people through, through their preaching. Large numbers of people would come to faith in Christ during this time, which would become known by a particular name. Do we know what that name is? What's that? The Great Awakening. Close, yeah. Yeah, the Great Awakening, which implies something, right? If it's called the Great Awakening, what does that imply? What was that? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of sleeping going on. Deep sleeping. Um, so those lives were being changed through the preaching of these and other men in the area. And there's a place in Enfield, Connecticut, where the people were not believing. Right? The, the revival had not affected them. And on July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon there that he had already preached at least one other time. Uh, but he would preach in that town this sermon on this occasion, on July 8, 1741. And that sermon would have a profound effect on many people. Uh, I kind of view that area as like, uh, you know, when God's sending Jonah to, to preach uh, to the people there, and, and he didn't want to go because he knew what God would do. And he goes and preaches, and what does God do? God changes people. He turns people to himself. His um, reaction was better than Jonah's, though. What's that? His reaction was better right. than Jonah. Right, yeah, Edward's reaction was better than Jonah. He didn't have to get swallowed by a fish or anything like that. Uh, he was obedient. Um, so, but he preaches a sermon that had this effect on people, and it said that he couldn't even complete the sermon because the wailing and crying of the people was so loud that, that he couldn't even complete it. Um, and then the pastors that were there would go out into the crowd and pray with people and 
um, and minister the truth of the gospel to people, and people come to faith in Christ. And that sermon is still considered one of the greatest sermons ever preached, uh, certainly the greatest of the Great Awakening. Does anyone know what the title of that sermon is? I mean, we don't usually go around remembering titles of sermons, but does anybody know what the title of that sermon is? Right, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And we don't like to hear that today. Um, his opening scripture was this, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And that's from Deuteronomy 32, 35. And that's how he started. And if you haven't read that sermon, it's, it's actually online. You can find it online and read that sermon. It's a powerful sermon. Um, and I would recommend that you, you take the time to read, read through that sermon and really think about it. Uh, and think about it in, in light of this, that people were in a spiritual slumber. Um, they, people were thinking they're Christians and they're not. And imagine um, being there and hearing that sermon. Uh, you can understand the effect it would have on people. Um, and it, so I, I think it really is a powerful message regarding the vengeance of God against sinners. Um, Edward, Edwards had such a way with words um, uh, he, it's said that he was able to preach with such a booming voice that 30,000 people could hear him without amplification. Um, at least that's what Benjamin Franklin supposedly calculated through some equation, figuring out how many people and the space and all that. Uh, he determined that he could probably have 30,000 people hear him. Um, I think he and Benjamin Franklin became friends at some point, though I don't think Benjamin Franklin actually came to faith, um, but they had a they had a relationship. Um, so I would recommend that you go and and take a read of that of that sermon. I, there's a couple of parts of it that I wanted to read here um, from that sermon, just so you can you can hear it. In talking about wicked men, okay, remember his goal in, is is evangelistic and 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 wanting these men to come to faith in Christ. Uh, so in, in talking about that subject of wicked men and their state, he says it, in that sermon, this isn't at the beginning, I, I got two little segments I wanted to read from, from throughout that sermon. In this one he says, talking about wicked men, they are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God in whose power they are is not then very angry with them, as he is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell, who there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth. Yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, who it may be are at ease than he is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. So that it is not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and does not resent it, that he does not let loose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such an, such an one as themselves, though they might imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them, and their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do, not, the flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened its mouth under them wonder where terms like fire and brimstone came from. He also later on says, It is no security to wicked men for one moment 
that there are no visible means of death at hand. Think about that, right? It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health and that he does not see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by an accident and that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity and that the next step will not be into another world. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight and these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern them. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at the expense of a miracle or go out of the ordinary course of his providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment. So, I mean, you can see his goal, right? He's talking about sin and pointing out the wickedness of men and shattering their security in their health, their maybe good fortune, right? All the things that people grab onto and say, I'm okay. Like, we can't even imagine dying, right? That's, that's a long ways off. He's drawing their attention to the fact you could die at any moment, and this is where you stand before God. Um, and there's so much more in that sermon. Like I said, I would recommend going and reading it, but the result of it was that people, the people's response is to cry out, begging God for mercy. And I can't help but think about how Peter preached to thousands. And when God had sufficiently cut them to the heart through the preaching of his word, what was their response? Brothers, what shall we do? So, Edwards was used by God in a mighty way through his preaching and through his writing. In 1746, he published a treatise on religious affections, which explained what true conversion looks like as evidenced by the, the spiritual fruit of love for God and others, which we can find all throughout the scriptures, in particular 1 John. Um, in 1749, Edwards was impacted by the life and death of David Brainerd, who was a missionary to Native American tribes in New England. He did a biography, or published a biography of Brainerd's life and his diary, uh, and that would go on to have an effect on other missionaries later on, um, like William Carey. In 1750, Edwards was actually voted out of his church by the people because uh, he refused to serve communion to people who had not been truly converted. And they, they voted him out. And that's what he should be doing. And they voted him out. Uh, and it's, again, it harkens back to the Reformation. These were some of the things that were going on and some of the disagreements people had. They wanted to stand on the truth of the word of God and not take communion lightly. Um, so, though he preached there for 20 years, they, they voted him out. Um, he went on, um, like David Brainerd, to preach to the Native Americans. In 1758, went to New Jersey to serve as president of um, the College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton University. However, that same year, um, he was inoculated for smallpox, uh, but instead of protecting him, that inoculation would take his life at age 54. So he died, uh, in our terms, a pretty young, pretty young man. Um, and Edwards, like the Puritans, 
um, the Wesleys and George Whitfield, um, those guys from England, he had a profound influence not only on the people in his time, but in church history, right? Even up to our time, these men still impact the church as people find their sermons and find their writings and, um, and read them and learn from them. They're still impacting lives through their commitment to the authority of Scripture, okay? Which, again, is what we're looking at throughout church history is this continual returning to the Word of God and, and trusting the authority of the Word of God in the life of the church. And these guys were committed to that. Um, they had a love for the glory of God. And we can learn a lot uh, from the preaching and writing of these men that God, I, absolutely God raised these men up at this time to, to impact people's lives, to bring clarity to the word of God and to bring about revival in the church. Um, just Again, just a reading of Edward's resolutions, if you want to find those and read through them, uh, those resolutions for his own life, his conviction of, of Christian living, are, those are impactful. Uh, they'll, they'll really cause you to think. And I would encourage you to, I would encourage you to begin to read uh, the Puritans, um, read some of their works, uh, and, and look at their commitment to um, the Word of God, their commitment to obedience to God, because um, that uh, that's something that we can look to as every generation of Christians should um, desire that. We should desire to teach our kids that so that they can be the next generation of those who are, who are following in obedience to the Word of God and not drifting into idols or drifting into spiritual slumber. Um, so the work that, that these men did at this time is very valuable in, in church history. And we have all, in many ways, whether we really uh, understand it or not, have benefited from the faithfulness of these guys um, in church history. Any questions before we close? Yeah. Yeah, his was the, what was the name of it? The Congregational uh, Church there in um, Massachusetts. And I, I believe it was Methodist, unless it was Presbyterian. Do you know? Yeah, so I, I think it was maybe it was Presbyterian. But I don't, I don't have that off the top of my head, so I would have to look that up. Yeah, I think that was um, John Knox was... Um, was where the Presbyterian Church began. But though, you know, like we said, though there's all these denominations and they would have some differences, um, the core ideas of the Reformation were, were throughout them, at least at that time. You could look now at all these denominations and they've, they've drifted all over the place. Um, so, okay. All right, I'm going to close this in prayer and then we have... 25 minutes before um, our church service starts, so there's a time for everybody to fellowship together, and we have stuff in the fellowship hall, so you guys can wander in there and um, mill about, talk with one another, and enjoy each other's company. So thank you for being here, and let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for um, this, this study that we're doing and uh, what we can see throughout church history in, in people that you raised up to to do mighty things, Lord, for you in, in recovering the truth of your word, in um, grounding the church in the truth of your word. And Lord, it never ceases to amaze me that you can continually open blind eyes, people not understanding, Lord, though thinking they're Christians and they're not, 
We thank you, Lord, that you save. And you save through the preaching and teaching of your word. You save when, when people hear the gospel, uh, for it is the power of God and to salvation for those who believe. And we're so grateful for it. Thank you, Lord, for always um, continually having a remnant. Lord, Jesus said that he will build his church and nothing will prevail against it. And we can trust that, Lord. Though things ebb and flow and, and, and the church drifts here and there, Lord, we thank you that it will, it will never be overcome because it is not being built by men. Um, we thank you for that. And Lord, may we be faithful to your word. May, may we be found obedient uh, to your word and, and not drifting away from it. And we ask for your help in that. Lord, we acknowledge our dependence upon you and thank you for your Holy Spirit who is our helper. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.